0: It may be the end of the semester, but it's not the end of the daily weekly. So be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Subscribing lets us see that you're listening. And if you follow us, what is it? If What does it do? If you you'll follow us, and if you follow us, you'll get a notification of our newest podcasts. Woo!
2: Last November, Michigan passed Proposal 18-1, which legalized adult use of recreational marijuana and possession of up to 2.5 ounces. Sunday, December 1st, marked the first day of recreational marijuana sales. Four are located in Ann Arbor. The other two are located in Evert, which is located in the middle of the state, and the other in Morency, which is on the eastern side of the Michigan-Ohio border. El Moraz, manager of Arbor's Weldness, told The Daily about the high demand of customers lined up on Sunday to purchase recreational marijuana. We wonder, why does Ann Arbor have the highest concentration of marijuana shops throughout Michigan? What does the legalization mean for those incarcerated on charges of marijuana possession? And what additional policies are being pushed forward at the state level? I'm your host, Sonia Vogel. This and more on this week's episode of The Daily Weekly.
1: Hi, I'm Angelina Little. Um, I'm a sophomore. Um, I'm an assistant news editor at The Daily.
2: So today we are talking about the recent um, regulation and opening of recreational marijuana in Ann Arbor. And you wrote a story about that. And we're actually um, at some of the shops which are selling recreational marijuana starting on Sunday. So can you tell us about that story and about your experience?
1: Yeah, sure. So I visited um, a few of the shops that had people um, or that. Opened sales for the first time on Sunday. Um, each of them had super long lines around the block. Um, it was a pretty chill atmosphere. There were like people passing out donuts at outside Arbor's Wellness. Um, everybody was just like waiting in line for a really long time. I got there around like 1030 and some people had been there for like two hours already. Yeah, basically it was just a lot of people waiting in a really long line, um, excited to purchase recreational marijuana for the first time legally. Um, I also talked to one of the managers at Arbor's Wellness and he said that the first sales they made were to Ryan Bazer and John Sinclair who are both like pretty prominent um, marijuana activists um, from Michigan. So he said that that was like a really cool experience for them.
2: Did you get a chance to talk to anybody who was in
1: line yeah, I talked to a few people, good variety of demographics of who were there, probably more on the older side, like there weren't like a lot of students. I talked to one woman who said that she uses marijuana for fibromyalgia and like pain management for migraines, um, but she doesn't have a med card. I talked to some younger people who just were there because they love weed is sort of the explanation I got. Absolutely. Um,
2: Also, you mentioned that you spoke with one of the, or a manager from Arbor's Wellness. Mm -hmm. Could you um, maybe elaborate a little bit on that conversation and specifically what they were saying about um, this big switch to recreational marijuana um, compared to solely selling medical marijuana?
1: Yeah. So the person I talked to said that they had been like experiencing demand from recreational users pretty much ever since Prop 1 passed and they've been like getting calls about it and stuff. Like just last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, um, when the Marijuana Regulatory Agency announced that retailers could transfer up to 50% of their medical inventory to the recreational inventory, like sort of paved the way for um, being able to actually supply to recreational users. So even though there was like a super long line outside, he said that he had anticipated that because he knew how many people really wanted access to it and that they were um, he anticipated I mean, this was still early in the day, but he anticipated being able to supply everybody who wanted it because they were able to transfer so much of their medical marijuana inventory. Um, Could you speak a little bit more on
2: for people who don't know why recreational marijuana hasn't been available since the proposal um, passed last November, since it is now just becoming recreationally available?
1: Well, it's just mostly like a lot of like, Legal processes that companies had to go through to be able to like actually supply it. I think there's just been sort of a delay in getting licensing for that. Um, businesses in Michigan weren't even able to like apply for recreational marijuana licenses until November first. So this is sort of like the first round that we've seen of people being able to like go through all of um, the processes to make sure that they are. Um, eligible for licenses, and then be able to sell. So yeah, I guess it's just been sort of slow in getting those processes started. Like there's not a lot of suppliers right now that are licensed. I think that there's sort of like a lot of qualifications that go into that. Um, Do you know
2: more about what the process is or maybe what even the prices are of businesses being licensed to sell recreational marijuana? Uh,
1: Yeah, so on the licensing and regulatory affairs um, website, it says that the cost um, just to apply is $6,000. And then that doesn't include actual costs of investigation and processing that, yeah, there also needs to be a regulatory assessment of the facility, um, Like, that's further than just safety compliance. So with that, like, a hefty cost
2: of being licensed, did anyone mention how much, um, like, were prices up higher depending on what you're buying?
1: I didn't—I was mostly talking to people who hadn't purchased anything yet, but— I know, again, I already mentioned this, but there's a 10% excise tax in addition to Michigan's 6% sales tax. So recreational products are more expensive. Well, with all that, thank you so
2: much for joining us. This has been wonderful.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: Great. I'm Jeff Irwin. I'm the state senator for the 18th district. And that means that I work for the 280,000 people on the east side of Washtenaw County. So everyone in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti and all the surrounding communities um, are are my bosses.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just to get started, would you say that marijuana possession expungement is necessary? Could you say why or why not?
0: I do. As uh, part of why I introduced Senate Bill 416, which provides for the same, and uh, just as a bit of background, uh, when I was a member of the State House representing Ann Arbor, I introduced legislation to legalize cannabis. Uh, I was involved in the um, creation of and the campaign around Proposal One. So, um, you know, this is not an issue that is new to me. Uh, I've been involved in cannabis law reform for some time. And I can tell you that when we were drafting Proposal 1, uh, there were many of us who were around the table who were pushing strongly for uh, baking some sort of expungement uh, you know, uh, record set-asides into the proposal. And we even did polling on that, and the polling showed that uh, the public was very supportive and it actually increased public support of Proposal 1, uh, but uh, some constitutional restrictions on sort of how ranging – Uh, a citizen initiative can be led us to uh, take that out. State constitution provides a few different opportunities for citizens to go to the ballot. You can amend the constitution, you can do a referendum of a bill that's been passed, or you can do a citizen initiative, which is what we did with proposal one. And a citizen initiative operates much like a legislative bill in terms of the restrictions that are on what you can put in a legislative or a citizen initiative and so if you go into the legislative article of the state constitution there's something that's often referred to as the title object clause and it basically says that each bill can only be about one thing and that um the title of 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 the bill has to match it and the idea behind this was to prevent people from Uh, you know, amending bills in ways that had nothing to do with what was inside of that bill or uh, vacating all the content of a bill and completely replacing it with something different but still calling it uh, uh, what it was called before, uh, all those types of things. And so in other words, um, the citizen initiative process is also uh, limited by all of those uh, restrictions. And so the concern was that by uh, including criminal expungement into the initiative itself, it would have been essentially trying to pass two laws as one law. And the courts uh, could have uh, prevented it from going to the ballot on that technicality. So I feel that now that the citizens have passed uh, Proposal One strongly, now that we've legalized adult use of cannabis in Michigan, uh, the legislature uh, ought to go back and finish the job and ensure that anyone who is still harboring a record for uh, behavior that is now legal uh, has that uh, record cleared and um, enjoys exoneration from you know those charges, which, uh, in my view, should never have been criminal acts in the first place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, could you touch on the expungement efforts currently being brought forward in the state? Um, how far have they made it in the House and or the Senate?
0: What's actually happened in Lansing is that this discussion started in the House, and there were a number of House bills uh, that were all part of a package around expungement that were just recently passed out of the House. We're going to start debating those in early January in the Senate Judiciary Committee, of which I'm a member. Uh, Those bills uh, extend beyond just cannabis and provide additional opportunities for exoneration for a wide range of crimes. Uh, Basically, everything that isn't Assaultive, or you know, that potentially carries a life sentence. Uh, um, you know, we're looking at expanding opportunities for expungement in all those areas. Um, so I've got, I'm very optimistic about the prospects of this legislation, and and I'm I'm feeling as though, based on the trajectory of it all, that uh, it's really more about uh, how good is our exoneration opportunity going to be. Uh, how how good is our second chance uh, going to be for folks versus um, you know what we were thinking about maybe six months ago, which was, are we going to be able to get anything uh, over the line? I feel like there's a lot of momentum on this. There's a lot of bipartisan support. And even though Democrats and Republicans come to the issue for slightly different reasons, uh, there's a lot of bipartisan support around the idea that uh, people deserve second chances if people have uh, committed a crime, but then you know stayed uh uh free from any criminal uh convictions for a long period of time, you know that they should be able to have that wiped off their record. And there's also I think a pretty broad sense that with respect to cannabis, uh now that the people have spoken, if you've got a conviction for something that's now legal, you should you know be able to have that wiped off your your record.
2: Changing gears a bit to speak specifically about Ann Arbor. Why are 4 of the 6 recreational marijuana shops in Ann Arbor? What about larger cities in southeast Michigan, like Detroit or Dearborn, for example?
0: The simplest answer is that the Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act of 2016 and Proposal 1 both have strong local control components. Both laws allow local communities to decide whether or not to allow cannabis businesses in their communities and if so, you know, where and, and you know, at what times and uh, how many? And so uh, as a result, many, many communities have said that they don't want these businesses in their towns or in their townships. Um, I think this is happening for two reasons. One is because I think there are a lot of community leaders who are taking a wait-and-see approach. They're feeling like, let, let, let's let Ann Arbor and some other communities and uh, kind of race ahead and figure this out. And then we'll crib off of their work and, you know, try to make sure not, the sky doesn't fall, um, you know, or just, you know, crib off of other people's work in terms of the details of, uh, of all the zoning decisions and whatnot that need to be made. So there's that piece, but then there's also the simple fact that support for ending cannabis prohibition is very generational and uh, it's, it's it's a better predictor of people's support you know age is a better predictor of people's support for ending cannabis prohibition than than even party and um what is undeniably uh true uh, it's not controversial that uh, older residents tend to vote more than younger residents they tend to be more involved in their community affairs uh and they certainly tend to be the ones who get elected to make these decisions for their communities Uh, And so when you have a situation where the level of support for allowing retail cannabis sales in town is very much determined on how old you are and the people who are typically making the decisions, um, you know, tend to be older and more conservative in these ways, uh, you you get that. that, That's, I think, the other reason why we're seeing a lot of communities say, um, you know, we like economic development. We like jobs. We like tax revenue, but not that type of economic, not those types of jobs, not that kind of tax revenue. And um, you know, and it has it has a lot to do also with uh, some of the um, you know uh, lack of understanding that people have a, a, about public safety. I've heard a lot of community leaders express concerns about um, you know, well, if we allow uh, dispensaries in our town, that's going to bring crime. Uh, it's, the, the truth is just the opposite. Uh, we know from all the research on crime, particularly crime in urban areas, that the best way to address it is with eyes on the street, with activity, with people. And, you know, you take these uh, blighted, uh, darkened storefronts and you light them up and you put security cameras in them and you put, uh, you know, employees and customers, that's eyes on the street. That is, there's nothing that, that's going to make uh, a place safer than than more people and more activity. Um, and then also, a part of the goal here. And my my main goal when I got involved with this was to ensure that, uh, you know, people had their civil liberties restored and that people weren't thrown in a cage for doing something that uh, creates no victims and should be their own personal choice. Uh, But for a lot of people, and this is a a, a lesser reason for myself, uh, but still a reason nonetheless, uh, the idea of breaking the black market and taking this power out of the hands of criminal operations and putting it into a safe and legal space where uh product can be tested, public health can be looked out for, consumers can be protected, uh, people aren't going to get ripped off and so that we can get some of the violence out of, um, you know, the back end of the drug trade. You know, that's a, that's a, that's an important possible gain that can be had as a result of legalization. And if these communities are saying no to retail sales and they're, in their downtowns what they are implicitly saying yes to is illicit sales in their neighborhoods and i don't think that they they don't they don't hear their words that way but the world hears their words that way the market hears their words that way the black market drug dealers hear that and um you know they're the ones who benefit from you know, a lack of legal access.
2: Right. Absolutely. Um, and just to finish up, could you speak on the process of obtaining a license for recreational marijuana um, and what that looks like now for people who are unaware, specifically for businesses?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's going to be hard to do that in a way that is comprehensive because there are so many different types of licenses available. So let me start with that. There, Within the uh, medical marijuana and also within the adult use market, Uh, there are a a number of different business lines that you can get into. Uh, You could try to open a testing facility, uh, a lot of capital involved in that. Uh, You could try to open uh, a transport operation, which are the folks who are legally required to transport the product from cultivation to retail. Um, And if you're involved in either of those, there are all sorts of rules about how you can't have any stake in ownership in any other licensed cannabis business. Uh, And the, the application fees for those um, just like all the other license levels are, are on the um, marijuana regulatory agency's website, uh, but there's so many different levels, it's hard for me to just you know go through them all. I certainly couldn't do it off the top of my head. So in addition to testers and transporters, there's also the marijuana business licenses that I think folks are a little bit more uh, um, cognizant of, right? So we have we have retail licenses, uh, often called dispensaries, and we have uh, cultivation licenses that come in at several different levels, Class A, Class B, Class C. There's also a a micro grow that allows you to apply for a license that is to grow only 100 plants. And then uh, there's also something called the marijuana micro business uh, license, which is sort of like a brew pub for cannabis. Uh, The idea is that you can grow up to 150 plants and and you can also retail and also process all under one roof, uh, but you cannot transfer any of that product to other licensees. So much like a brew pub works, um, uh, you know you can develop and sell your own product, uh, but you can't sell other people's products and you can't sell your product to other retailers. Uh, and then there's also um, processors. A processor license would ent- uh, would ent- uh, entitle you to uh, process cannabis products. So that could be anything from topicals and oils and tinctures to you know waxes and um, Uh, All sorts of edibles of all types, right? So, any sort of food stuff or uh, capsules or any sort of uh, um, um, non-smokable preparation is typically going to be created by a processor. And so, for each of those different license types, and even within those license types, there's some levels, uh, there are different licensing fees.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Daily Weekly. Again, I'm your host, Sonia Vogel. This episode was produced by audio engineer Gibson Gillette-Barrons, executive producer Catherine Newhan, audio producers Josh Sotikoff, John Kuhnin, and Abigail Elward, as well as content producers Kareem Rafai, Callie Teitelbaum, and Rachel Fagan. All of the amazing music in this episode was made by Gibson Gillette-Barrons.